Good morning, church family. Let me extend my welcome to those of you who are visiting with us today. We're delighted that you are with us. During the summer, we take 12 weeks and preach through the Psalms. We are in our fifth summer. So today we're in Psalm 58. And as we have been making our way through the Psalms, we are also singing uh, each week that Psalm. And it serves as a reminder to us that in ancient Israel, this was their hymn book. They sang, the people of God sang, and they sang in reflection to a number of things. And even this morning, as Pastor Laramie said, how many of you have sung about a slimy uh, snail before? Uh, they sang about interesting things, and it, uh, many of these psalms are, are indeed psalms of lament. And in fact, over the course of the last several weeks, we have been in a section of psalms that are psalms of lament. And this psalm this morning itself, Psalm 58, is a psalm of lament. Now, Psalm 58 is in some ways unique among this collection of psalms in that, for sure, we have seen over the course of the last several weeks a more personalized lament coming from David. And it would seem that as we've been in this collection of psalms, that indeed David is reflecting on a period of time in which Saul was seeking his life. But if you'll notice this morning, as we read together Psalm 58, and we reflect on this Psalm together from this text of Scripture, there is no individual expression in this Psalm. Thus, we understand Psalm 58 in some ways to be a community lament. This would have been a lament on behalf of the entire nation of Israel. And notice what the nation of Israel is lamenting. The nation of Israel is lamenting the lack of godly, righteous leadership. The nation of Israel is lamenting the fact that her leadership, her judges, are living out their lives in injustice instead of in righteousness. They are an evil group of people. And it should come to no surprise for those of us who have read our Bibles to understand this godly principle that when the righteous rule, when the righteous rule Cities experience the blessing of God. When the righteous rule, the people of God experience the peace of God. It's one of the reasons why, though we, unlike the nation of Israel who lived under a theonomy, they lived under the rule of God, their entire system was set up, in obedience to the laws of God. We don't live in a theonomy. We don't live in a Christian nation where the laws of this nation are just simply the Bible. We live in a secular society that undoubtedly has been influenced by Christianity. 
and yet seems to be moving further and further away from that influence. This is one of the reasons why Christian people should be so passionate, not only in the context of the church, not only in the context among the people of God, but also in the context of our communities, our cities, our states, and our country, we should actively participate in electing godly men and women who will reign and rule in righteousness. This lament, potentially flowing from the life of David and in this intense period of time in which David's life was being sought by uh, King Saul. We don't know that to be the case, perhaps the case, but for sure the case in which the nation of Israel finds herself under the leadership of wicked judges, wicked rulers. We learn this truth from this text. Believers, that's you and me, believers hope must be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers' hope must be in the Lord Jesus Christ as righteous judge, knowing that we live in an evil world. Believers' hope must be in the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that we live in an evil world. Look how this psalm begins with this acknowledgement that we live in an evil world with wicked leadership. Listen as the people of God lament. If you're reading this morning from the ESV or the NASB, verse 1 reads something like this. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? If you're translating from your Hebrew Bible this morning, or perhaps reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, you'll get a translation something along these lines. Really, in silence, do you seek righteousness? There is somewhat a debate if every one of you will look at the very end of verse 1, or at least this phrase in verse 1, you will see a footnote. I guarantee the large majority of you have a footnote right at the ending of this phrase in this text of Scripture. This verse, you might be thinking, how in the world do we get one verse that reads, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods or you mighty ones? And how do you get really in silence? Do you seek righteousness? It all comes down to one word in the Hebrew Bible. And not only just to one word. In the Hebrew text, the original Hebrew text, there were only consonants. There were no vowels. And in Hebrew, the only way that you have vowels is through what we call vowel pointing. For example, there are two vowels that look much alike. For example, it's uh, two little dots like this and one dot at the center. So three little dots just like this. Well, remove this one dot at the, at the bottom, and now you just have two dots. 
That one dot radically changes meanings of words. So what we have in the Hebrew text is the consonants to the word Elohim. Now, you've heard the word Elohim before, right? That's a word for God or for for gods. So you have consonants here in the Hebrew text that are uh, similar to the consonants that we find in the word Elohim. The difference comes in in terms of the vowel pointing. And for the large majority of translation history, this verse was translated as I've given it to you in the second rendering. Do you in silence really judge righteousness? Whether you take that rendering or the rendering that your verse translates in mine in the ESV, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? The understanding from verse 1 is that God is executing his judgment, his rule, his law among his people through his leaders. Now, we see this word gods, and you might be prone to think, Wait a minute, I thought there is indeed only one God. Well, that is indeed true. But for example, if you were to go to Psalm 82, you're going to find a very similar phrase. In fact, just flip over with me real quick to Psalm 82, and I just want to show it to you. And you can be looking toward this sermon in, um, in, in two years. Psalm 82. Psalm 82. Read Psalm 82 with me. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the... What does your Bible translate? Gods. Now notice, of course, your Bible is translating this gods instead of rulers. It has a lower case G, right? Same thing back in Psalm 58. It has a lowercase g. So just for a brief this morning, don't be uh, surprised in thinking that the Hebrew text is acknowledging that there are these other gods who are in any measurable way equal to God himself. What the text is acknowledging again this morning is that God is executing His judgment among His people through His rulers, through His leadership. And we acknowledge this this morning. Whether we like the mayor in our local community or the judge in our local community or the president of our country, believers all acknowledge that that person would not be in a position of leadership if God had not willed. We understand, even though we don't like it, that in some measurable way, President Biden is fulfilling the will of God. This text is acknowledging that there are people who rule, that there are these lowercase gods, if you will, who are ruling on behalf of the one divine supreme God. 
And while they should be leading in righteousness, oftentimes they rule in wickedness. Do you hear what the text is saying? Do you really in silence execute justice? Should justice be a moment of silence? Should I be doing what is right in secret, in other words? Or should righteousness, should judgment be clear? Should we run from the righteous commands and justice of God? No, we should celebrate them, right? But notice what's happening in the context of this passage. These rulers are leading in such a way that they do not want to communicate the justice and the righteousness of God. They are silent when they should be shouting. We've experienced that in our own context. But friends, I want to remind you that the right application of righteous leadership in the context of this scripture is not for you and me to first think about our country. As I noted a few moments ago, the nation of Israel was set up drastically different than our system. This is a communication to you and me first and foremost to think about the leadership in the context of the body of Christ. We should expect and demand that those that God has placed in leadership in the body of Christ would be men who are leading in the righteousness of God and not running from and not being silent when moments of injustice occur. And too often, the testimony even in the body of Christ is her leaders are willing not only to be silent, but to participate in unrighteousness. And in case you're wondering, is there truly unrighteousness taking place among the people of God? Look how the psalmist continues. Do you judge the children of man uprightly? Do you judge the sons of God uprightly? Looking at, look at how the community responds. No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. Friends, if there should be one place in all of the world where the righteous decrees of God are celebrated and upheld, It ought to be among the community of faith. It should be among the people of God. Not only is this not always the testimony among the people of God in present-day expressions, it's not always been the testimony of the people of God even in Israel's day. Jeremiah has something to say about pagan prophets, does he not? Jeremiah has something to say against the prophets of God who position themselves in the place of God, but yet rule in the position of the wicked. The psalmist is a lament 
that when the people task with responsibility of leadership among the people of God fell, it has devastating effects among the community of faith. We must acknowledge that we live in an evil world that at times sees the rise of evil rulers. But when that expression abounds, do we lose hope? Do we lose faith? It's always discouraging for a host of reasons to interact with a person who at one point in their time, at one point in their lives claimed to be a believer. But because of a terrible experience in the life of the church, they abandoned faith. Just yesterday, I received a text message from a very good friend of mine who said he had two really interesting conversations. He owns a furniture store. And he's just an incredible evangelist sharing the gospel. And he had two conversations yesterday. One of those conversations was with a family. The husband was there who at one point in his life was a pastor of a local church. But because of this terrible expression and experience in a local church, not only is the husband now disconnected from the local church, the entire family is disconnected, and the husband claims to be an atheist. Friends, acknowledge and purpose in your heart at this very moment that even in the context of this local church, there is not one leader, whether a pastor or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher, who is in, in any measurable way equal to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I'm telling you, there will be times in the life of this church when one of her leaders completely, totally wrecks our faith, our hope, our trust. Do not Put your faith in me or Pastor Laramie or Pastor Travis or any one of our deacons or any other single person in the life of this church. You look and think toward Christ and Christ alone. And when that moment comes, and we've had them, we will corporately lament but our faith will not be shaken. Look how the community responds now here in verses 3 through 6. Uh, 3 through 5. Look at the designation that the text gives of these who have acted in a very wicked manner. He explains their corrupt influence on the community of faith. The wicked are estranged from the womb. In other words, he's saying these people have been wicked all their days. 
They're evil, perverted people. They go astray from birth. And what is their primary problem? They are speaking lies. Friend, you and I are never more like the devil than when we lie. They're speaking lies. This is the problem. Go back to verse 1. Instead of using their tongue and their mouth to communicate the righteousness of God, they're using their tongue and their mouth to communicate wickedness, lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of the charmers or of the cunning enchanter. Mama taught us as a young kid how to identify a venomous snake. And what does she want us to do with that venomous snake? Kill it. Or run. Quickly. A few years ago, I was in India with Zach Truitt and Taylor. And we ended up down this back alley off the beating path uh, in this little in this little village, and when I mean off the beating path, I mean all the homes were uh, constructed from like bamboo uh, branches, and they had thatch roofs, or some of them maybe had some tin, maybe even a few homes had concrete cinder blocks that were built, but for sure no floor, dirt floors, all in the house, and. Uh, of course, here come a, three white dudes. Most of the people in that little back alley never seen a white man before. And so, of course, everybody pours out. And out comes this man with this box. And he's got this little jingle he wants to tell us. Then he wants me to stick my hand, Randy, in the box. Well, of course, I'm far too intelligent for that. I, at the end of the day, have a PhD. You know, I'm really smart. But Zach doesn't have the PhD. So he's not all that smart, you know. And guess what Zach Truitt does? He sticks his hand in the box. And guess what pops out of the box? An adder. A cobra. Now, the story would be told that they had removed the the fangs from the cobra, so even if it struck at you, it wasn't going to inject its poison. But my mama taught me better than that. (laughs) We, without experience of the bite ourselves, We know the devastation that a poisonous snake with one bite can have. Destruction, the loss of a limb, the loss of life. It's deadly. Notice how he paints the leadership of the nation of Israel. They're like that adder. They're like that venomous snake 
who cannot be charmed by its charmer. They're out of control. They're wild. Nothing can tame it. And that wild cobra will wreak havoc on a community of faith. But look what happens in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. Believers must hope, as I told you a few moments ago. Believers must hope that God and God alone will execute righteous judgment. Look at verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. I was delighted to know that that serpent did not have any teeth in, teeth in its mouth when Zach Tritt stuck his hand in there. Why? Well, in retrospect, if I could go back down that back alley again, I might be prone to play with that snake now. Why? There's nothing it can do to me. I know it. Look what the psalmist is saying. Lord, remove the ability of the wicked to execute their injustice. Remove their power. Displace them. Might they see... They are not the one who reigns in victory and power, but only you, God. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out their fangs of the young lions, O oh Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Some of you have perhaps seen from the Middle East or in Africa, they have these, these wadis or in maybe a more similar expression. If you go down to southern Utah, you can go into some valleys that are exceedingly narrow. And if they get a lot of rain all at once, that water runs off so quickly. And guess what it causes? Flooding. So this is the image here in verse 7, let them vanish like water that runs rapidly through the wadi, you might say. Or the one who has an arrow, but that arrow is bent. It's useless. It has no effect. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. I'm not quite sure what the imagery exactly is here other than we've all seen a, a slimy snail and perhaps the imagery here is that the snail itself has completely dissolved itself as it has carried itself along a hot, dry path. It's completely dissolved. Like the stillborn child who never sees the son's sudden death. And notice the progression in this text. Lord, if it be your will, remove their power. Lord, if it be your will, cause it that they have no effect whatsoever. Lord, if it be your will, bring them to an immediate sudden death. Death. 
Sooner than your pots can fill the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. Now, friend, the temptation for each of us, particularly when we experience some form of injustice, is to want to rectify that ourselves. Even in the context of our own country, we have seen over the course of the last 50 years as this country has been guilty of the murder of more than 60 million innocent children, we have seen expressions from time to time where someone was so passionate about that evil that they had taken up arms themselves and sought to bring to end the life of a doctor who was murdering innocent life. But notice the psalmist doesn't call up the community of faith to take arms. The psalmist calls a community of faith to express their faith and their hope and their trust in God's ability to execute righteousness. Perhaps, friend, you're even in one of these situations now. You find yourself in an expression of injustice in your workforce. Perhaps you find yourself in an expression of injustice because a company that you hire to do work at your home did a poor job and only did that job halfway and it's cost you a lot of money. Perhaps you think even this morning that you are in a marriage that is filled with injustice and you're not getting a fair shake in your relationship with your spouse. Do you hear the psalmist? Verse 6, O God, are you trusting in God this morning, friend? Are you trusting in God to vindicate a wrong in your life? Don't think that delayed justice is God turning a blind eye. Don't think that delayed justice is God standing idly by. Don't think that delayed justice is God withholding justice. Notice how the psalmist closes here in verses 10 and 11. Believers can rejoice knowing that Christ will bring final justice. Hear the community rejoice. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Jesus 
fully God, fully man, left his throne and he became God incarnate. He took on flesh so that in taking on flesh, he might provide redemption. He might provide atonement. He might provide final redemption for people who had no hope. Being fully God and fully man, he was without sin. He who knew no sin, the Bible says. And yet this one who knew no sin, had acted on no sin, had never sinned. would bear the force of an unrighteous justice system. He would experience perhaps the height of injustice. And Jesus, knowing the difficulty of this expression, even prayed at that moment in the garden, asking God if there be some other way that God would indeed accomplish His will in a different way. Yet, Jesus fully submitted to the will of the Father, went to a cross to die a sinner's death that He did not deserve. And if there was any injustice ever perpetrated on humanity that deserved what you and I would understand to be the righteousness of God, it would indeed be the death of Jesus. But Jesus died that unjust death so that dying that unjust death those of us who are unrighteous might be made righteous through Christ. Did Jesus' early disciples fully understand what was taking place? No, you remember that night in the garden when the guards came to arrest Jesus. He had some passionate disciples there with him, did he not? One pulls his sword and chops off the ear of Jesus. The others gather at the foot of the cross. And within just a matter of moments, they completely deny even having known Jesus. They want nothing to do with his narrative. Some seeking justice in their own hands. Some running from justice from Jesus. Fearing the injustice of mankind. For as John would say, there were many who loved the glory that came from man more than the glory that came from God. And yet, friend, that narrative is not finalized. For evil 
still pervades our expressions of life. But notice what this text says. We can hope and rejoice today. Why? We know that there is a God. Notice the very end of verse 11. There is a God who judges on earth. And as Isaiah depicts for us in these beautiful images at the end of his book, when Jesus returns, he and he alone will execute God's final statement of justice against those who have been unjust, against those who have practiced injustice, against those who have perpetrated every form of wickedness known to mankind. But you might be thinking, aha, I'm so glad that one day Adolf Hitler will absolutely receive final justice of God. Perhaps you're thinking, I am so glad. Fill in the blank. Some of you had expressions of loved ones who have been murdered, and you wait for the day when that person will receive God's final justice for this ultimate act of evil. But watch it, friends. God is not only pouring out His wrath against those who have acted in the most unjust ways. Perhaps one of the greatest statements of injustice that you and I oftentimes easily overlook is the injustice of your heart's rejection of Jesus as Lord. And friends, the same God who will pour out His wrath against those who have acted in the most heinous way will also one day pour out that same measure of wrath against you who have rejected His Son Jesus as Lord. And notice what this text closes with. This is the hope of the righteous. We can rejoice and hope now in a statement of judgment that is yet to come. Steady your heart, friend, today on this eternal truth. Regardless of your situation, no matter how wicked, how bad it is, God is coming through His Son Jesus, and He is going to be that judge who acts on the earth. But friend, for you who are away from God and Christ today, this is not a statement of hope for your life. It is a statement of judgment Would you trust in Christ today? Would you join the community of believers seated in this room today in believing that Jesus is Lord? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your incredible grace to us. 
We thank you for the hope that we have, that you are an eternal, good, righteous God. And we cast ourselves this morning, Lord, at that eternal truth. We hope in that eternal truth. We take joy in that eternal truth. And we rejoice. We rejoice, Lord, knowing that you and you alone are a righteous judge. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning, friends, and reflect on the preaching of this text? Do you desire godly leadership? Do you long for godly leadership? Do you desire that leadership in your home? Do you desire that leadership in your church? How are you working toward that being a reality? How are you laboring? Are you praying for those who serve in position of leadership that they would rule and reign in justice? Are you praying for the President of the United States? Are you, are you praying for your local congressman? Are you praying for your spouse? Are you praying for your future spouse? Are you actively pursuing a spouse who loves God? Have you lost hope? Perhaps you've seen too many expressions of injustice. This morning you say, Pastor, I just don't know. Would you hear the words of this psalm this morning that there is a righteous judge on the earth? Would you renew your hope and trust in him? Perhaps you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ. You've never believed that Jesus is Lord. Would you trust in Christ today? For the Bible says, if you believe in your heart, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Would you trust in Christ today? In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word. And perhaps you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ and you have questions of what that means. As we sing, I'm going to be standing down front. Please feel free as we sing to come forward and I'll be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, you don't have to come forward and talk to me. There are plenty of godly people seated around you who would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ.
Secondly, perhaps you would like for me to pray with you. To pray about an unjust situation in your life. To pray that indeed you would hope rightly in God. I would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a community of faith in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with, with God. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, we ask that our response would be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.